who's your trusted source when it comes to your facility questions, concerns, and needs? Ours is Hard True, the world's largest manufacturer of tennis court surfaces, equipment, and accessories for over 90 years. Partner with their trusted team of experts, along with collegiate greats Jamie Loeb, Alex Rybakov, and Dustin Taylor to bring the service provider of over 30 professional events annually to your facility. Whether it's the red clay of the Houston ATP, the green clay courts of the Charleston WTA, or the official hard court of World Team Tennis, Hard True has you covered. If you're looking to build a court, convert a hard court to clay, or simply resurface your hard court, work together with Hard True in their mission to lead the tennis industry by creating better places to play. To learn more about their state-of-the-art surfaces, along with their catalog customizable on-court accessories, check out hardtrue.com or call 877-442-7878 today. That's hardtrue.com or 877-442-7878 today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, June 8th. Two very different scripts unfolding on the bottom halves of the 2021 French Open men's and women's singles draw. On the men's side, things have gone as expected as Alex Zverev going to take on Stefano Tsitsipas for a right to compete in the men's singles final. Those are two players in the top four of Tennis Abstract's clay court ELO ratings, top four of the 2021 ELO ratings. Two guys we have become accustomed to seeing competing in the final stages of of Grand Slams, and it feels fitting that one of them is likely going to have to take on either Rafa or Djokovic finally in a Grand Slam final to earn their first Slam title. Of course, on the women's side, it's been a completely different story. If I would have told you tomorrow Zidantic was taking on anyone, whether that was a top seed in Serena Williams or Arena Sabalenka, we would have said it was a surprising semifinal. Instead, we get two first-time semifinalists as tomorrow Zidantic going to take on Anastasia Pavlchenkova, the perennially top 50 player, former world junior number one, reaching the, her first semifinal after a dramatic three-set win over Elena Rabakina. And of course, what I want to do on today's podcast is recap all of Day 10's quarterfinal matches. It was, again, two very different scripts. The men's matches all going in straight sets. The women's matches all going the distance, plus a little bonus time, made for some very compelling viewing for all of us tennis fans. And of course, again, want to make sure you all have all the information you need as we head towards the year's second Grand Slam's home stretch. So recapping the quarterfinal is going to be the goal of today's podcast. Of course, the reason I'm able to do this day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from 
from our friends at Tennis Point. Quickly for the Patreon family out there, the return of the Match of the Day segment came this week. I broke down Tsitsipas Medvedev. I also broke down Sakari Sviantek. If you would like to hear those match breakdowns, you can do so and become a Patreon member at Crack Rackets. Go to our website, crackrackets.com, to find more information. And again, we are eternally grateful to all of you that do support us right now on Patreon. Of course, we are immensely grateful for the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point as well. And as I used to say with Midwest Sports Supplies, doubly, one could argue, for Tennis Point, you're going to find all of the best gear at all of the best prices. You use our promo code CR15. Not only will you get 15% off your order, you'll get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. You'll also let them know that we here at Crack Rackets sent you there. So remember, it's tennis-point.com. If you go to midwestsports.com, it'll redirect you there. But tennis-point, make it part of your routine. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that in mind, Let's break down Day 10's matches. Let's start with, I'm going to be honest, a little bit of a disappointing affair between Stefano Tsitsipas and Daniil Medvedev. Now, the fact that Daniil Medvedev even reached the quarterfinal stages of this French Open feels like a coup. You look for him in his career, he still has an under 500 record in clay court matches. I believe he's now 15 and 19 in his career on the surface. But it was an impressive slate of wins for him to reach this stage to beat Christian Green in straight sets, beat uh, a guy in Riley Opelka who's been dangerous on the clay in three straightforward straight sets, no tiebreakers even in any of them, to beat Tommy Paul in four sets as well. Uh, Medvedev impressed in this French Open, and it's clear that just his physicality translates across surfaces. That first serve translates across surfaces. His consistency, his ability to change direction from the baseline, how solid he is off of both wings. If you don't have a big weapon, it's still going to be incredibly difficult to hurt him, even on a surface like clay. And his movement has translated as well. He moved immensely better on the dirt of the French Open, even than he did earlier in the clay court season, but against the elite of the elite, you know, his weaknesses on clay are still exposed. They become very uh, much evident, and I think Stefano Tsitsipas exploited all of those weaknesses. Medvedev's serve is neutralized on the surface, and I talked about it in my match of the day segment on Patreon. You look, and I, I tweeted out that fact yesterday as well for Daniil Medvedev, and As you guys know, there's nothing I enjoy doing more than quoting my own tweets, but just some stats heading into the match, why I thought it could be exciting is that Daniil Medvedev's first serve, which has normally not translated on clay courts, had translated in this French Open. He was winning about 80% of his first serve points heading into uh, this uh, affair with Tsitsipas. And you look in his numbers in his his career, you know, he's won 80% of his first serve points against Tsitsipas in their seven matchups prior to this one. He had won 56% of his second serve points. He had hold 87% of the time. Those numbers would rank second, fifth, and seventh overall a 
amongst top 50 players. So he had served like the top five server he is when his serve is landing against Stefano Tsitsipas in their matchups. Now, the flip side for Tsitsipas, and we've talked about this number before, his break percentage jumps from 20.8% in his career in ATP level matches across surfaces, which would rank 41st, to 27.8% on clay, which would rank 14th. So he becomes the from the 40th ranked returner to a top 15 returner. Meanwhile, his hold percentage stays pretty steady, 86% overall to 845 on clay. He's a top five server on clay, and then he becomes a top 15 returner as well, because as mentioned, the clay does neutralize the serve, so he has a little bit more time, A, to run around that ball, hit forehands, B, it, the pace doesn't overwhelm his backhand as easily, so he's able to swing through it more comfortably. Again, for the Medvedev serve question, his hold percentage drops from 82.6 overall to 73.3% on clay. And in this match, his serve percentage struggled, and that's a testament to A, uh, Tsitsipas' strength as a returner, but B, again, the change of surface did benefit Tsitsipas. The numbers manifest itself in this match. Medvedev made 67% of his serves, uh, first serves, which is 10% higher than his career average when playing Tsitsipas, but only won 60% of his first serve points. Now, he won 60% of his second serve points as well, but that's very much because Stefano Tsitsipas was taking big cracks at the return. He was using that first return or that first forehand as just a first strike and taking Taking control of the point. And you look for Tsitsipas in this match, he had so much success on serve. Was only broken twice in the match, won 73% of his first serve points, 75% of his second serve points, made 65% of his first serves as well, and just played plus one attacking tennis. You look for him in this match, he won, uh, you know, 65 of the zero to four shot rallies compared to Medvedev's 53. He also won 53 of the five plus shot rallies to Medvedev's 38. So, you know, he's plus uh, 27 overall in total points. And he just was the better player in every aspect of this match. His forehand was the biggest weapon on the court. It did the most, you know, penetrating of the court, getting Medvedev pushed back six, seven, eight feet behind the baseline. And then, you know, Tsitsipas is so effective moving forward as well. Was 24 of 32 at the net, hit 33 winners against only 24 unforced errors and just was constantly playing attacking tennis. Now, it was a credit to Medvedev, who in that second set was down a set and a break, and it looked like the match might get away from him quickly, Uh, regained his footing and got that break back, just started making a few more returns deeper in the court, down the center of the court as well, and then started attacking himself and starting to work his way towards the net just to get Tsitsipas on the back foot, even if the approach shot wasn't perfectly placed or didn't have perfect depth. Uh, He just wanted to work his way forward, and he did go 18 of 23 at the net. Now, there were some ill-fated serve and volleys in there. The obviously underhand uh, underhand serve on match point didn't please anyone. But this match, and, and you look from Medvedev again, 18 of 23 at the net, 31 winners against 44 unforced errors. He started to become more aggressive, but he just couldn't hurt Tsitsipas. And that's a credit, again, to Tsitsipas's improved fitness, physicality. He There are no issues about his movement. There is no issues about, is he a bit robotic? No, he is as fluid as he needs to be. I think his movement on the clay reflects that. I think his touch has gotten significantly as better as well. He noticed Medvedev was camped 
camping seven feet behind the baseline, started mixing in the drop shots, mixing in the short angles. Again, on these clay courts, his ability to rip through his backhand, that one-handed backhand is so dynamic, and it's so heavy as well. Um, just the topspin he's able to produce on that shot when he it does have enough time to swing through. And he was comfortable playing backhand cross-court patterns with Medvedev, waiting until Medvedev would float a ball a little bit closer to the center, and then Tsitsipas could run around it and hit a big inside-out forehand to eventually set up the inside-in or work his way forward, mix in that drop shot. The whole variety was on display for Tsitsipas. And again, he dominated in that second-set tiebreaker, taking it 7-3, and... You know, Medvedev did have his chances in that third set. There's no denying that. Medvedev kept those second and third sets close, but he never really threatened Tsitsipas. Maybe the end of the second set, you say, okay, you know, that 5-all, five 5-6 five, range, he kind of, you know, 4-5 range, he was putting a bunch of returns in the court, and Tsitsipas, you could feel the momentum shift a little bit there, but then they played out the tiebreaker, and Tsitsipas jumped all over him, and it's just really hard to overcome a two-sets-to-love lead, particularly when you're playing someone of Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas' caliber at this stage. I know some of you are saying, well, didn't Chorch just do it last August? Yeah, but it was a different surface. It was a different Tsitsipas. He advances to the semifinals again, uh, 6-3, 7-6, 7-5 now. I said this at the top for Daniil Medvedev. You make the quarterfinals of the French Open. That's another slam quarterfinal under his belt. He defends his number two seed. He deserved to be a top five seed. It's just he's that tough of an out on any surface right now, but in particular in a three out of five set format um, because of what he can do physically. Because even in a match where he didn't have the biggest weapon on the court, even in a match where his serve was neutralized to the extent that it wasn't the elite weapon it usually is, he still found a way to put himself in a position to win the second set and honestly could have won the third set had he just stayed disciplined there towards the end. It's tough to do that when you feel like the calls start to go against you. And again, when for two hours straight you haven't been able to hit a winner because this guy is just tracking down everything and turning defense into offense but Tsitsipas just takes away the things you want to do he finds a way to stick alive there are so many adjustments mid-match he can make he had to use all of them but Tsitsipas was too good today and so for Medvedev you mark this up as a win you essentially defended your seed Tsitsipas was the favorite entering this match via the money lines via the tennis intelligentsia and Tsitsipas earns the victory and again you look for Stefano Tsitsipas now 54 and 17 in his last 52 weeks that's a 76 percent win percentage that's not quite the elite of the elite seasons we saw from the Federer's, Djokovic's, Nadal's in their prime, but that's sniffing the edge of it. And again, he turns 23 in August. His best tennis is still in front of them. I do think he's going to rip off one of those seasons where he wins over 80% of his matches, wins seven of the 17 events he enters, throws in a couple more finals, and throws in a slam title in that sort of season. He has displayed that sort of upside, that sort of consistency across surfaces. You know, we still haven't seen him play much on grass, but Look at that attacking game style, his ability to move forward, his ability. The returns will be the question for him on grass, but certainly he's got the serving aptitude to be successful there. Anyways, 54-17 and 17 now in his last 52. You look for him overall on clay. It's a 75% win percentage uh, compared to 67% overall in ATP-level matches. I've mentioned these numbers before, but the whole percentage drops by 1.5% from 86 to 84.5. Now that 84.5 number would still be a top 8 
number amongst top 50 players. Meanwhile, his break percentage jumps from 20.8, which is in that 40 range, as I mentioned, to 27.8%, which is number 12 on the top 50 leaderboard. He's He is unequivocally a top five guy on clay. ELO rating reflects as much. Uh, and you look overall ELO right now in terms of uh, for Stefano Tsitsipas, he's number four in overall ELO, trailing Medvedev, Nadal, and Djokovic. He's number two in clay court ELO, trailing just Nadal. And he's number two overall in 2021 ELO, trailing just Nadal. He's made the jump. He is the elite of the elite now, and it's time to start talking about him in that same category. As you talk about a f- maybe not of Nadal and Djokovic, but the rest of the conversation, I don't think this is anything new. But if there was ever any doubt, I think he's now erased it. Stefano Tsitsipas is a top five player. He's one of the guys, if not the guy to beat in every event he plays. He deserves to be in the semifinal. He outclassed Daniil Medvedev, earning a straight set victory once again, 6-3, 7-6, 7-5. With that in mind, Let's talk about a, um, someone who just outclassed and was in a... This was perhaps my favorite match of the day. I mean, both of these women's matches were outstanding, but let's go now to Pavlochenkova Rabakina because, you know, Elena Rabakina, after knocking off Serena Williams, became my favorite to emerge out of that bottom half, regardless of Bedosa, regardless of anyone in that section, because... I think she's part of Serena Williams, a future member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. I do think her top gear, her first serve is a top five first serve, and her ability to play power tennis means the matches she plays are on her racket. But Anastasia Pavlochenkova was outstanding in this match. And you look for Pavlochenkova, for those of you who don't know her story, 29 years old, was world junior number one by the age of 14, won two Grand Slam titles in that season. And that was back in 2006. And since she reached the top 50 of the WTA rankings in 2008, it was November of 2008, she has yet to leave it. That's a span of more than 12 years. And, you know, I believe she participated in something like 40, or it's now like 50, I want to say three, consecutive Grand Slam events, which is, you know, a top 10 streak. And she has just been a pillar of consistency. She's now made the quarterfinals at every slam she's faced. And not only has she done that in singles, she's done it in doubles as well. And, you know, she's someone who has won five, uh, or excuse me, 12 singles titles in her career. Someone who has won five doubles titles in her career, been ranked as high as number 13 back in 2011 in singles. But, you know, she struggled to get over that top 10 plateau and that's the toughest plateau in tennis to climb and again she's been a pillar of consistency she's won over 50 percent of her matches in every season since 2013 you you look at 2017 she went 41 and 24 that year in wta tour level matches she made four different finals won three titles two of them on a hard court one of them on clay uh that was an outstanding season but you know these past few years she's been fine 2018, 23, and 20, 2019, 25, and 20. Uh, you know, again, that's that's sort of a plateau, but you look for her now in her last 52 weeks, we're starting to see someone who's playing the free tennis and the sort of tennis we knew she's been capable of since she emerged on the tour, again, back in the 2000s. She's now 17-13 in her last 52 weeks. You look at the wins she's accumulated here in the French Open, wins in three sets over Sabalenka, Azarenka, and now Rabakina. It's a testament to the tennis that she's played in, and this match in particular, her plus one backhand was just 
outstanding. And it was very frustrating to me because you could tell a lot of this match was on Elena Rabakina's racket. When she was landing first serves, playing plus one tennis herself, or taking big cracks at the, at the Pavlochenkova serve and landing them deep at Pavlochenkova's body, she had control of the point until she would hit to Pavlochenkova's backhand wing because Pavlochenkova's ability to, A, keep a condensed backswing on that side, but B, take that ball early, take it down the line, take it cross court, more importantly, just hit it to the open space. She was so good off of that backhand wing, scary good throughout the course of the match, and the stats reflect that fact. She won the 0-4 to four shot rallies 82-73, to 73, and I think that's a testament to the fact that Look, Rabakina didn't always need to go for the huge put-away on the first strike. She gave herself a little bit more margin towards the alleys because she knew if I could hit the plus one, then the second shot's going to be open to me, and I can hit to the open court as well. Pavlochenkova, there was no hesitation. She took that first ball early. She hit it to the open court, whether it was down the line, whether it was cross-court, and more often than not, she made it throughout the course of this match. And why I was so frustrated, Pavlochenkova's got a big forehand backswing. And it just felt like Rabakina never identified that that's where the power's got to go to, whether it's my first serve, whether it's my first strike. Just attack that deuce side wing. And look, there's no doubt when Pavlochenkova has time to set, that forehand wing is the more dynamic of her two ground strokes. She can put an, imp- an increased amount of top spin, and you know when she connects with it, it's going to be a winner. There's no denying that. But that was the side because of how big that backswing is. It felt like she turned to slice a little bit more. She would just, at best, keep the ball at neutral, not be able to be aggressive because of how much pace Rabakina was throwing at that wing. And yet, Rabakina didn't do it. She didn't park the bus on that forehand corner. And look, Rabakina's, what, 21, 22 years old? There's pl- she's only going to get better from here. Again, one of the biggest winners of this French Open is unequivocally Elena Rabakina. But it felt like that adjustment was available to her. And look, the more physical the point got, the more it leaned towards Rabakina, who moves really well and leverages her length outstanding, uh, given she's, what, around six feet, maybe a little bit taller than that, and just... You know, she's able to find power from all different parts of the court. If she gets her racket on the ball, it's usually going to have pretty damn good depth. She hit some backhand down the line passing shot winners. I think she hit three of them in the first set that were just silly, silly good. Like, just full on the run, full stretch, full power down the line, kept that ball inside the alley. It was... Oh, man. I mean, it, she just beat Pavlochenkova to the spot, but Pavlochenkova did a really good job of, because as well as Rabakina move, she's still not an elite mover by any stretch of the imagination, and, you know, Pavlochenkova did a really good job of just playing that first ball out of the air, and she was 8 of 15 on net points. I don't think that includes the swinging volleys she hits from no man's land that were just, again, taking that ball early so that Rabakina didn't have time, because once she hits her stride, she does move well, uh, didn't have time to at her feet, didn't have time to get her momentum to the ball, and you know, again, you look for Pavlochenkova, she did all of the little things well. She made 69% of her first serve, won 69% of those first serve points, won 55% of her second serve points as well, 44 winners against 28 unforced errors. She did a really good job of being aggressive, but controlled aggression. Again, more taking the ball early than going for these corner shots and just, you know, beating Rabakina to the spot routinely. And for Elena Rabakina, 
46 winners against 43 unforced errors. She won, six, I believe, 67% of her first serve points, 51% of her second serve points, you know, earned three breaks of serve on seven break chances to Pavlichenkova, six on 17, but a lot of that had to do with the lopsided second set score. Rabakina had chances to win this match. She fought down of, out of a couple love 30 deficits in those, I think it was the 6-7 and maybe even 7-8 game as well. Uh, excuse me, not the 7-8 game, but the 6-7, maybe the 5-6 game as well. And just, you know, kept coming up with winners whenever questions were asked of her until the end. And it was an unfortunate double fault ending from Rabakina, but that speaks to the constant pressure Pavlichenkova put on her Especially, again, I can't emphasize enough how impressive that backhand wing was for Pavs throughout the course of the match. But, you know, Rabakina is going to be kicking herself. And I do think when she looks at the film, it's going to be like, I played too much to that backhand wing. The forehand was open. And that's very easy for me to say, I know, from this podcast booth. But it did feel like the weapons, and more importantly, the opportunities to just remain on her front foot were there, and that she found success whenever it was even a big first serve to that forehand wing, because it felt like the second serves that Pavlichenkova was able to connect with, a lot of them were backhand second serve returns. And just again, to switch gears and talk about, you know, Rubakina did so much well, but Pavlichenkova just executed her game plan extraordinarily. And you look for Pavlichenkova now, who's into the first semifinal of her career at the Grand Slam. That's, of course, after this quarterfinal was her first as well. It's funny because coming into this event, you look for her in round of 16. She was 7-1. and one. In the round of 16 at Grand Slams, her one loss coming uh, at the U.S. Open back in 2010. But, you know, she won round of 16 Australian Open in 2020. And in 2019, she did it as well. She did it in 2017 as well. You know, 7-1, and 6-1 and one coming into this event, but had had success in the round of 16. Was 0-6, though, in her prior quarterfinal matches. So, excuse me, it wasn't her first quarterfinal. It was her first quarterfinal victory here, first semifinal now. And you look at the losses, two of them to Serena, one to Venus, to Schiavone back in the 2011 French Open quarterfinals. She lost that match 1-6-7-5-7-5. You know, lost her match to Danielle Collins 2-6-7-5-6-1 in 2019. The other loss was to Muguruza 2020. This has to feel good for Pavlochenkova, having coming so close a couple of times now. She finally advances to that semifinal stage, 29 years old. She's been the pillar of consistency. I mentioned it. She hasn't dropped out of the top 50 since 2008, and to not deal, you know, to do that when you're 17 years old or, yeah, and not have an injury flare up here or just not have a, a bout of inconsistency to be that sustained to have that sort of sustained excellence for that long and to have you know made six quarterfinals but to have never advanced past that stage it, it, you have to feel excellent for Pavlochenkova who deserves to make a final four whose game is that well rounded and who now you know, is as much as it experiences anyone left in the draw, certainly, and is probably the favorite in her next match now against Tamara Zidanzik because, you know, again, 
at least Pavlochenkova has flirted with this stage of a Grand Slam before. For Tamara Zidanzik, she has been excellent on the clay courts. There's no denying that, but did anyone expect her to not? You know, she's taken advantage of her draw as well. There's no denying that. She knocks off Andrescu 9-7 in the third in her first round match. That was the number six seed. The big match for her to get through. And, you know, again, Andrescu served for that match at 5-4, but... Then she beats Brangle in straights. She comes back from a love six first set deficit to beat Kater- uh, Katerina Senyakova in three sets. Then a win over Kirste, and now three set win for her over Paula Badosa Jaber, who has been a top ten player, who is one of six players in the women's game to rank in the top, uh, you know, uh, twenty in both hold percentage and break percentage. To beat that quality of player speaks to how good Tamara Zidanzik has been over these past few months, and in particular at this. Uh, you, uh, U.S. Open, excuse me, at this French Open. You look for Zidanzik. She's 21-15 and 15 in her last 52 weeks, but that does include a run to the Bogota final where she played one of my favorite matches of the year against young Maria Camila Osorio Serrano. She then goes to Madrid, qualifies before losing in three sets to Barty. She goes to Rome, qualifies, uh, beats Sloane Stevens, who obviously had some success in this tournament, before losing to Bernardo Pera first round. Also got a win over Martin Sova before losing to Sasnovich in one of the warm-up events, but has played good tennis here in the clay court season and certainly you know have the wins been outstanding outside of the win over you know you maybe say the win over Kalinskaya win over Stevens those were her two best heading into this Roland Garros but you know you look last year she played Garbine Muguruza 8-6 in the third set and you know in Prague she made round of 16 before losing three sets to the eventual finalist Jeannie Bouchard she's played some really good tennis has the 23 year old over these past 52 weeks and it's it's a testament, honestly, to her forehand. Her forehand in this match against Paula Bedosa, it's as strange as it is to say, it was the most dynamic shot on the court. And her ability to find forehands on that ad side, her ability to hit that ball inside out in particular, to open up the inside in, and her ability to stick to her patterns throughout the course of the match... It's what ultimately earned her the victory in this one. Five, seven, uh, excuse me, seven, five, four, six, eight, six. And look, I mean, and the numbers reflect. Tamara Zidancic played a smart match, made 67% of her first serves, won 60% of those points, uh, was 8 of 9 at the net, 48 winners against 39 unforced errors. She did a really good job of minimizing her the opportunities Bedosa had to play first strike because there is no denying. Paula Bedosa, when she's hitting the ball linearly, line drive tennis, she is better at it than Tamara Zidancic. And whenever she would land a first serve or Zidancic would float a backhand in the center of the court, Bedosa would tee off. And her ability to hit that first forehand cross court in particular for a winner, she just hits the ball by you. That's the that's the hard thing to do. You know, down the line power is easier to find than cross court rip it by you power. And Bedosa has cross court rip it by you power. And she can do it on the backhand wing as well if she has time to set. But that was the key is giving Bedosa time to set. And Tamara Zidancic didn't allow that. She did such a good job again of moving that forehand around the court, keeping Bedosa moving on the outer thirds as well. And then honestly using her backhand as a placeholder as well, just keeping that ball deep cross-court, not allowing uh, Bedosa to have these easy opportunities to rip into forehands. I mean, they they came every so often because, again, Bedosa supplies so much great pace from the baseline, and she's such a good mover on the surface as well. And just 
It's a really well-rounded game. I, I'm not sure how well it's going to translate to grass, just given how predicated it is on being at the baseline. But in terms of hard court, clay court, she is going to be such a tough out. I think she's got all of the talents to be a top 30 player for a very long time. But look, again, Zdancic's forehand was the most dynamic shot on the court, and it wasn't just her plus one ball, which she hit plenty of, but her ability to first forehand, you know, cross court, second forehand down the line, third forehand inside out, getting Bedosa stretch outside of the alley, fourth forehand inside in or cross court, depending on where Bedosa would go, and then following that ball to the net for a winner. And you look at the numbers in this match. You know, Zanzik 58 on the 0-4 to four shot rallies to uh, Bedosa's 51. She did when she was just so good at moving that ball around the court. Now, I would bet of those 51 0-4 shot rallies, 38 of them for Bedosa came in that second shot because if she if she connected with a plus one forehand, the point was over. Um, now you look at the points that extended beyond that, Bedosa was plus four in those categories of the five plus shot rally. She won 60 to Zidanezic's 56, and that speaks to the physicality of Paula Bedosa. And the longer the rally went, the more susceptible Zidanezic was to leaving a backhand a little bit shorter in the court or, you know, again, leaving something in the center for Bedosa to attack. And Bedosa did a really good job of doing that. I know 31 winners against 47 unforced errors doesn't sound great, but I think that unforced error count skews a little bit high. I think Zidancic put a lot of pressure on Bedosa, and you know sometimes she would try to bail out of rallies a little bit early, go for a big down-the-line shot when maybe she didn't need to, but again, she's played a lot of physical tennis of late to get to this stage. And you know for tomorrow, Zidancic, she can absolutely win the match against Pavlachenkova because I still think her forehand is the most dynamic shot in that match. And I think, you know, Pavlachenkova will punish the second serve the same way Paula Bedosa did. And you look for Zendantic, she won only 40% of her second serve points in this match. But Zendantic does the same thing. She finds forehands, she's able to stretch you, and I don't think... Pavlchenkova is as good of a mover as Bedosa is, and as much as Rabakina puts pressure on you with her pace, it was a different sort of pace. Zidancic's more stretch you out towards the alley sort of pace, whereas Rabakina's more line drive through you pace. And I think Pavlchenkova is going to have problems with that. Now, again, for Zidancic, she can't afford. Or she does a really good job getting depth on her backhand. I don't think that's going to matter against Pavlochenkova. I think Zidancic needs to recognize early on. I need to go to the forehand wing because again, Pavlochenkova is going to punish the second serve and any backhand you leave short. She's changing direction on you now. I think Zidancic does a better job of tracking down that. Pavlochenkova down the line backhand than Rabakina did and stretching that ball, taking the open space, getting that ball cross-court and now forcing Pavlochenkova to hit on the run. The question is, how much gas does Sedancic have left in the tank? Will she be overwhelmed by the stage? Those are all questions you can't answer. And again, I think Pavlochenkova is going to have a lot of chances to play first strike because her first serve is the biggest serving weapon on the court, and she's going to punish a lot of Zidancic's even first serves because of how good she is as a returner. But Zidancic's the more traditional clay court player, and so that match is very, very interesting. First Grand Slam semifinal for both of them. It's going to be a really fun set of semifinals, uh, regardless of who emerges on the top half as well. I know the names aren't as flashy as the names on the in the men's draw still remaining, but I think no matter what, we are going to have a really, really fun ending to this 2021 French Open. That's not going to surprise any of you listeners to hear out of me. Uh, of course, the other match I want to talk about uh, on today's podcast, and we'll just do it quickly here because... 
Look, I mean, Alex Zverev was playing an Alejandro Davidovich Fokina who was, the gas was on empty. Let's be clear. He had played 14 sets in his prior three matches for Davidovich Fokina to beat Garin, beat Del Bonis, and, you know, even get to this stage of the tournament. It's a testament to the progression of the 22-year-old, and you look for Davidovich Fokina now. He's going to end this event inside the top 40, new career live ranking of number 35, that's where he belongs. You look at the success he was able to have over the course, not only of the clay court season, but over the last 52 weeks. Davidovich Fokina uh, is 38-20 and 20 in his last 52. That's a two-thirds win percentage. We say it all the time. When you're winning two-thirds of your matches, you're moving up in the rankings. He made Rome round of 16. He made Monte Carlo quarterfinals. He made Montpellier quarterfinals earlier in the season. Paris round of 16 to end last year. Cologne semifinals and quarterfinals last Last year, round of 16 U.S. Open. He's a guy who's just a really tough out physically, can do a lot of different things at the court, doesn't have a glaring or discernible, you know, noticeable weakness other than I suppose that second serve hangs short at times, but you could say that about everyone. He's got a really high floor, and I think we're going to see him be a top 50 player for the duration of his career, at least while he is in his physical prime, which should be the duration of this decade, because again, he is only 22 years old, but Again, a lot of physical tennis for him this week versus a guy in Zverev who hasn't dropped a set since his first round match. And look, Davidovich Fokina went up an early break in this match, but Zverev quickly found his footing. He's just able to get his return of serve so deep in the court. And then as the first serve started landing more and more, only made 55% in this match, but was 43% in the first set, 55% in the second set. By the third set, he was at 79%, winning 91% of his first serve points. Overall in the match, won 26 of 34 first serve points, 16 of 28 second serve points, won over 50, uh, 50% of his return points as well, 43 of 73, 24 winners against 16 unforced errors versus the 16-37 count for Davidovich Fokina. The thing was, it was very obvious, and Davidovich Fokina talked about it after the match, the gas tank was on empty, and he was hurting physically, and he was bailing out of rallies early, trying to go big down the line because he just wasn't going to last with Zira physically. And so there's not much to add in terms of analysis from Alex Virov in this match. It's another Grand Slam semifinal for him. You look at these past few slams now, obviously... Zverev was able to do it uh, at the U.S. Open where he made the final, was a quarterfinalist in Australia this year before losing to Djokovic. Last year was a round of 16 loss to Sinner at the French Open. I mean, six straight fourth round or further for him at the Grand Slam. Physically, his body is ready for three out of five sets, ready to do it two weeks consecutively. He's a really tough out, and you know it's noticeable that in all of his runs, this is now his fourth, in, or maybe it's his fifth Grand Slam semifinal, for Alex Zverev, let's see, you look for Zverev now, it is indeed his, no, it's his It's his third semifinal, and in his run now, in each of his three semifinals, he hasn't beaten a single top 10 player, the response is obviously you can only play the draw ahead of and played in front of you, and unless you are a top 10 player, you're just not beating Alex Zverev at the slams anymore, so he ends up in the semifinals, and now, Things get interesting, right? Because we get Tsitsipas versus Zverev, and 
Look, that's a matchup Tsitsipas has had success in. You look overall, Tsitsipas 5-2 versus Alex Zverev. He's had a lot of success breaking Zverev's serve. You look for him overall, 26% break percentage versus, as I mentioned, that 20.8 he has for his career in ATP tour-level matches. Uh, he just has a good read on Zverev's serve, and I also think Zverev serves a little, gets a little bit shaky in these sorts of matches, particularly when there's pressure on them. But you also look, Alex Zverev beat him the last time they played this year in Acapulco 4-6 and six and, you know, did have success with his serve in that match and won 78% of his ser- first serve points. Now won less than 40% of his second serve points, but made 61% of his first serves. And of course, that's the number for him. Can he make over 60% of his first serves when he does? He's able to mix in the plus one tennis with his you know, physicality with his defensive skills, and then he becomes a really tough out. And the difference between he and Medvedev, because you say, well, didn't Tsitsipas just beat a guy like Zverev and Daniil Medvedev? And the answer is not no right off the bat, because there are a lot of similarities. The difference is Zverev hits a much more dynamic ball, particularly on a clay court. His forehand rips through the court a little bit more when he's connecting with it, because that forehand's a little bit heavier. He's also a little bit more comfortable moving on the surface than Medvedev is, and that serve, because it's more dynamic, uh, has a little bit more bite to it, the backhand as well. And so, you know, again, it's it's not as neutralizing a surface for Zverev as it is for Medvedev. You know, additionally, Zverev's made a final before. Tsitsipas never has, and that is a factor coming into this match. Now, of course, the moment Zverev starts to consider himself a favorite, things get really, really tight on the Zverev end, and, you know, Tsitsipas is playing with house money, it feels like, right now. That's how well and confidently, freely he's playing. Certainly, you know, 5-2 and two career head-to-head, he is going to have no fear of facing Alex Zverev in this match, and you probably think of all of the opponents for him to have to get over the hump of to reach his first slam final. Well, that's a good matchup for him, but, you know, again, Zverev's going to track down that first forehand from Tsitsipas, hit that dynamic passing shot, get that first ball low and rip the second passing shot, and, you know, he's going to go, he's not going to be afraid to go forehand to forehand with Tsitsipas, and he's going to probably enjoy the pace added by Tsitsipas and the dynamicism of the Tsitsipas ball so that he can hit through and hit a little bit flatter at the same time. You know, Zverev has wilted under these scenarios so frequently, and it's hard not to root for Tsitsipas, who just feels like this is his event, and this is his moment, and the buildup has all been for this moment, but at the same time, physically, just Zverev is the fresher of the two players, and Zverev is such a tough out, three out of five sets, that match is going to be fireworks, as is today's Berrettini-Djokovic matchup, and I, I feel like by the time you listeners are hearing this, the morning matches will have already played, and so not much use in adding analysis to that. Rafa Schwartzman certainly going to be exciting, but Djokovic-Berrettini is interesting as well because, you know, just uh, another plug for ELO ratings. You look at the clay court ELO, uh, specific ELO ratings, we have six of the top eight players still alive in the French Open, and, you know, Djokovic is number four, Berrettini's number six, Schwartzman's number eight for those of you Curious. And again, it's Rafa 1, Tsitsipas 2, Zverev 3. Um, Berrettini, you could make the case, has been better in this clay court season than Novak Djokovic has. And, you know, again, it's a, it's not the easiest case to make, but you look for Matteo Berrettini uh, throughout the course of this clay court season. He's 29-10, and 10, by the way, in his last 52 weeks. But 
Fine, he lost a first-round match in Monte Carlo to Davidovich Fokina. Since then, he won Belgrade, where he beat Karatsev and Krajinovic and Cecinato. He makes the final of Madrid. He beat Rude. He beat Green. He beat Fonini before losing to Zverev in three. Round of 16 in Rome before losing to Tsitsipas. I mean... Though he, he his only losses are to Davidovich Fokina, quarterfinalist, Virev Tsitsipas, semifinalist. You look for Novak Djokovic, he was fine in this clay court season. You know, in terms of Monte Carlo, loses to Dan Evans. That was weird. Belgrade semifinals, three-set loss to Karatsev was a fantastic match, but certainly weird. And then loses to Rafa in Rome, loses a set to Andre Martin in Belgrade. You know, the two sets he lost to Musetti. Again, on paper, you could argue Berrettini's had the better clay court season. Of course, paper is only that. Paper, and we come into this match. Yes, he lost the first two sets to Musetti, but the rest of the match was so physically easy. It was as if he also got the withdrawal like Berrettini did against Federer. But you can't, you know, three days off in the second week of a Grand Slam is as valuable as any quality out there. And look, Berrettini's got the weapons and plays a decisive enough brand of tennis that he can absolutely hurt Novak Djokovic. And he can absolutely, if his first serve, first forehand is landing, he's just going to win points, regardless of who the opponent is. The problem, of course, is no one does a better job of neutralizing service power and just getting that first ball deep and on your body and getting the point back to neutral than Novak Djokovic. And again, Djokovic is going to find your weakness. In this case, it's the Berrettini backhand. Djokovic actually looked really good playing plus one tennis against Lorenzo Musetti, and he's going to have to do that just to keep Berrettini on his back foot, but this is an interesting one. And again, an early deficit from Djokovic. Will Berrettini blink the way Musetti did physically? I don't think so. And so I'm not saying upset alert. I'm saying Djokovic in four, and I think Berrettini is going to win a set, and he's going to earn that set. It's not going to be one of those Djokovic falls asleep at the wheels. I think it's going to be a 7-6, we'll say second set, and then Djokovic takes three and four. Yeah, Djokovic wins set one. Berrettini wins set two. Djokovic wins three and four. But, you know, again, I, I think that's a really fun matchup because Berrettini does have the weapons. And I think he's playing with house money. It's a very free feeling when you're playing number one seed in Novak Djokovic. That's not a match you're expected to win. And I just think Berrettini is going to come out loose, come out firing. Uh, but again, by the time you all hear this, likely the other matches will have played on the day. Soccer and Sviantec was our match of the day for our Patreon listeners. So again, if you want to hear content like that, you can find it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, if you've missed any of the days of this 2021 French Open, you can catch up on all of the action here on our mini break podcast feed. If you want to hear about some of the action happening, happening at the challenger level, collegiate level, you can check it out, of course, on the Great Shot podcast, interviews on the Cracked Interviews podcast. Podcast into, uh, of course, I will ask that for all those shows you like, rate, subscribe, review, share with your friends. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to super producers Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. A shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis point.com. The promo code is CR15. But with that in mind, for super producers Fligner and Westoff, for our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.